0: Welcome to Arrested DevOps, episode 31, Docker, Docker, Docker. I'm your co host, Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter.
1: And I'm your co host, Bridget Kremhout, at Bridget Kremhout on Twitter.
0: Arrested DevOps is brought to you by 10th Magnitude, a cloud services company that figures if you're listening to this podcast, then you must be pretty cool. You can find out about joining their cloud services team at 10thmagnitude.com.
1: We all know that being on call sucks. But what if there was a tool out there that allowed you to route incidents to the right team, at mention specific people to ask for help, and hop into chat with your team from an easy to decipher incident timeline that give you full context of what was happening? That tool is VictorOps and they're different. From setting up global on-call rotations to creating a post-mortem report, VictorOps is there with you through every step of the incident life cycle. Their real-time collaboration platform helps your team to solve problems faster. Sign up for a 14-day free trial to see how they're making on-call suck less. Visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash VictorOps to sign up.
0: This episode is also brought to you by Datadog, a monitoring service for scaling cloud infrastructures that brings together data from servers, databases, apps, and other tools. Datadog monitors your Docker containers performance and correlates these metrics with the performance of the underlying infrastructure and the applications running inside. Check it out with a 14-day free trial at ArrestedDevOps.com slash Datadog31.
1: Joining us here today to talk about Docker, Docker, Docker is James Turnbull, VP of Engineering at Kickstarter. James, thank you for joining us. Can you give us a bit of background on yourself and your interest in this Docker stuff?
2: Sure. So I've been in engineering and operations for about well, quite a few years more than I can <laughs> think about. Over the years, I've seen a lot of sort of containerization solutions. Um, you know, Docker is obviously not a new thing, but when I saw them uh, open source the Docker product, Solomon Hikes uh, gave a talk at PyCon that um, was really awesome, and uh, I was finally like, "My God, this is actually a solution that's built by people to be usable by people," um, as opposed to some of the previous containerized solutions, which were built by engineers to be usable by a very small subset of other engineers. So I, I recognized pretty early on that I thought Docker was going to be sort of a, a pretty big change in the way people were going to do things and had the potential to sort of facilitate a bunch of DevOpsy like
1: stuff. Well, we are all about devopsy like stuff here. You have listed in your lower third, Kickstarter, Docker. I know that you did work at Docker. Can you talk a little bit about what this Docker advisor role means? Like, What is your ongoing involvement with the project?
2: My uh, initial involvement with the project was obviously uh, I was involved in the open source side of things. I wrote a book about Docker. Eventually, I worked at Docker running the services and support side of things basically building the customer-facing business. Unfortunately, Docker's in San Francisco and I'm in New York, and a uh, startup at that sort of stage requires a lot of sort of on-the-ground presence in the office. It's uh, So I was on an airplane quite a lot. I was also doing a lot of evangelism and uh, uh, going to conferences and talking about Docker and going to meet customers and things like that. So I spent about I spent a frightening number of nights in hotels last year. It's, it's, it's something approaching 180 to 100 nights. Um, <laughs> Needless to say, uh, my wife and my friends were like, do you live here in New York anymore or do you live in airport lounges? When you start to recognize the airport lounge staff and the flight uh, attendants on the New York-San Francisco route, I start to recognize you, uh, you realize that it might be time for a bit of a break. So uh, I, uh, I parted company with the Docker guys and took a more step back and took a more advisory role, which is really around, um, I provide a bunch of advice around the open source project and the governance there, Uh, around the business um, and the roadmap and a bunch of other areas like that.
1: Great. Awesome. So you mentioned the Docker book. I know that you keep writing books. You say that R.B. Brown puts up with this, which is a good thing. But um, can you tell us a little bit about what led you to write a Docker book specifically? And like, I, I have it. I've read it. I know what parts I find the most useful, but can you tell me like what were your favorite parts to really write, to dig in and write a book about?
2: Big thing for me around Docker was that when I first looked at it, um, it was it was it was much easier to use than a lot of other tools out there, but it was an entirely new technology to a lot of people, particularly to a lot of developers. Um, it feels very infrastructurey to developers. It feels very sysadminy. So I wanted to write something that would sort of um, allow people of varying a very introductory book that of people of varying skill levels to sort of be able to understand really quickly, you know, what is Docker, what is the value I get out of it, and how do I use it, and here's some useful things. So it's very much a practical book. So it actually focused on things like I would like to test an application, um, or I would like to build a service, um, or I would like to use Docker with Jenkins. Things, things that a typical developer or sysadmin would do. Um, and those are probably my favourite chapters, um, uh, chapters five and six, which sort of talk about uh, Docker as a testing tool and Docker as a production services um, uh, implementation, and uh, you know, it t- touches on sort of you know continuous delivery, continuous integration. Um, and touches a bit on on things like microservices and, and different architectures, um, which was really exciting to me because it sort of allowed people to sort of see uh, this is what this might look like in production.
1: Here's the million-dollar question. Are you using Docker in production at Kickstarter?
2: We are. We've actually been using it longer than I've worked here. Um, so uh, one of my colleagues implemented it. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting about our environment is that Everybody basically has a replica of the Kickstarter environment locally on the laptops, so we do local development there, and that's a heavily uh, Dockerized solution. At some point in time, we'll probably look at doing some more Docker stuff in production. Um, we're a big AWS user, so there's uh, things like ECS that are interesting, and, and uh, uh, I think for our, from our point of view, um, it presents some, some sort of useful scalability sort of uh, advantages.
1: Yeah, cool. So, I mean, that's that's actually. And I know Matt has some questions for you about that, but I got to say, that's what you just described is some of why we find Docker really useful at where I work at Drama Fever, too. Just the ability for the devs to have production on their laptop is really powerful. It's so like, here's the exact container that's running in production and go.
0: Yep which is which is a thing I wanted to kind of get a little I wanted to kind of bring bring back a little bit because as as I kind of joked I said this is going to be the episode where Matt sits around and has no idea what James and Bridget are talking about um so I'm I'm representing the people that aren't as experienced with docker or or kind of work work around it and I don't mean around it but I mean like it's part of our ecosystem not like I try to get around it like as this thing that gets in my way. But I want to understand. So one of the things that, that I kind of think about the same the same thing like with PaaS, right? Like I remember going through this with on the Azure PaaS side, which was nobody wanted to rewrite their applications to be cloud native, but new stuff they would do that way. Is is that kind of a, 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 a true statement when we think about containerization is that if you're talking about true microservice, if you're talking about something that's built for that type of a, of a role, do you get more bang for your buck versus trying to take something that's a more traditional application and saying, well, sure, that's great that I can have a copy of everything in, in on dev, which I think is awesome. I mean, I love config management for that reason, right? You know, um, I love the idea of a local VM or that looks just like prod. Do, do, do you get that utilization? And, and Bridget, I'd like to know, like in your experience too, where, where you're doing that, are you, seeing, are you talking about applications that were designed to be used in this manner, or are you taking applications that weren't designed to be used in that manner and being able to let Docker make them easier?
1: We are um, a startup that's been around for five years, and we have a giant monolithic Django Python app, and then we added a whole bunch of Go microservices later. While the Go microservices are, of course, easier to Dockerize, uh, we do have the Django app in Docker, like we did move it into containers before I got there. This happened in like October, 2013, I think. So I'm pretty sure that's about, maybe James knows, but I think that's when Docker's website pretty much just had like giant letters in blink that said, do not use this in production. Uh,
2: It was probably, it was October, 2013, did you say? Yeah. That'd probably be a, those letters didn't actually come down until mid 2014 when uh, Docker, the first DockerCon where, uh, we actually the night before we launched 1.0, <laughs> I removed all references to the word "don't use in produ-, That sentence "don't use a production" and redeployed. So,
1: yeah. So we did migrate a pre-existing app into Docker. From what I understand from uh, my coworkers uh, Tim and Paul, who did it, who were there at the time, it was not without its challenges to Dockerize. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's certainly not impossible. Like, you don't have to just be greenfielding in order to use Docker. Um, James, what what is your experience on this?
2: Um, I think that's one of the really interesting things about Docker is that the, the Docker file is incredibly simple to build. And yeah, it, obviously, microservices lends itself, Docker lends itself to microservices really strongly, but it's not the only architecture you, you want to use. I think the... There's a lot of Brownfields apps that have ended up in, in Docker because it is inherently so easy and it's very easy to integrate with configuration management. So you've already got those things with Chef Cookbooks or Puppet Modules, then it's very easy to use those to build Docker images. Same with tools like Packer and things like that and Vagrant, we integrate with Docker as well. Um, so if you've got a bunch of existing infrastructure, it's relatively easy to introspect that and create um, Docker images from them. And the very fact that it tends to be sort of focused on that build dev test workflow means that there's a lot less cycle time in building some of that stuff that, you know, you look at, let's say you wanted to replicate the the production environment in a, in a test cluster in in your sort of data center or in locally, something like that. That's probably a non-trivial exercise. Whereas, you know, sort of building up a, a a Docker image, you know, you can do that sort of relatively quickly. You don't need to, you know, buy 10 new test servers or you can you can actually you can actually sort of play around with that in a much more uh, much faster than you would otherwise be able to.
1: And especially if you get into some of the orchestration tools that you cover in your book, like Fig, for example. Um, some of our devs have started using that and we're finding that it's pretty helpful to put to drop a fig.yaml file in uh, any given repo and then say, hey, this is how you fig up the stuff you need to actually test this project.
2: Yeah, I think multi-tier, I mean, obviously multi-tier apps are, are something that Docker is as yet not awesome at. Um, and fig makes a lot of that, which is, fig's about to be renamed to Compose, I believe. Fig makes that a lot easier and it allows you to do something like, you know, a, a sysadmin or an operations person can create a fig YAML file that contains like, you know, my, my Rails container, my um, Nginx front-end container, or my Unicorn container, a, a database container and a Redis container, um, and and basically hook them together, create all of the links between them. Um, a dev runs one command and gets a functioning version of the oper- of, of their application that they can work from uh, on their laptop locally. I, I, I sometimes think that people forget how hard this is to do, and how before Docker started talking about like people sort of, you know, they kind of forget the, the, the past and they go, oh, my God, Doc's a pain in the ass to use. And I'm like, compared to what exactly? Compared <laughs> to your previous build or compared to you shipping around, you know, 10 ISO files and uh, uh, running, you know, Vagrant and 20 VirtualBox, um, you know, VMs on your local machine. Um, like, that's a non-trivial thing to set up. Um, and I'm sort of like, uh, you know, I think the, the, the phrase is... um. Uh, The phrase I use every now and again is, I think people protest us too much um, because it's (laughs) a thing as opposed to like remembering the fact that, no, it wasn't that long ago that the Dark Ages were real. Um, And uh, I'm not suggesting that Docker is a panacea, but it's certainly a step in the right direction.
1: Yeah, that's definitely been our experience. Um, I actually joined Drama Fever right when we were in the process of, and this is probably backwards, maybe, I don't know, but we had actually gone to production with Docker and had Docker on the um, shared, like, dev QA environments in um, in EC2. And then last summer, right about, I think, when James was editing the website to say, it's okay to use it in production now, at that point we were starting to get all of the devs to actually use boot to Docker. And so I came in during that part, and it was actually really, it was fun, and it was a great learning experience for me. And it was also, it, it basically showed me that, having the devs have the ability to grab the containers that it's not, is this sort of like, did, did this get, was head at the right place? Did this get checked out? You know, now I, am I loading the right fixtures? My Vagrant box, maybe not be exactly like what's in QA right now. Well, what is in QA right now? And it's like, now you can just grab the container grab the container image for what you want, start the container you want. And you know, you're looking at the right thing.
2: Yeah. I think that's a really important step forward. And, and, you know, I think that the, The fact that Docker does smooth the edges around all of those little subtle differences like fixtures and versions of gems or pips or whatever it happens to be, um, uh, uh, you can't underestimate how much time engineers spend actually troubleshooting shit like that. Um, like, the, you know, I fairly regularly have conversations with engineers who go, I lost three hours of time because my local machine bundle is stuffed on my local machine or RVM is broken or RBM is broken. Um, and those of you familiar with the Ruby world know that's not an uncommon occurrence. And when it happens, it's a pain in the ass to fix.
0: Yeah. That, that kind of ability to just sort of instantiate, you know, however, however that's done, I, I think is, is again, whatever, whatever the, the mechanism is, like you said, that the dark ages weren't that long ago. And I think I, I, I just, just not, you know, kind of, I, I make a similar statement when I talk about just having to do with, the testing tools we have around configuration management. I'm like, hey, in the olden days of a year ago, here's how we yeah. tested Chef Cookbooks. Right. Yeah, you know, right. and it's
2: do you, it's do you remember the time before test kitchen, all of two and a half Exactly.
0: Right.
1: every day, every day now I say, Thank you, Fletcher. <laughs> so we had a we had a question from IRC. Someone named Tom Fuey says, Do you have databases in Docker in production? And um and I let him know that at Drama Fever we use RDS for what what we have in the MySQL container um, for the uh, dev environment or the for the local environment, like actually in dev, QA, and prod, we just are pointed at RDS. But James, in your experience, do people use databases inside do. Docker in production? Um,
2: so we have um, we on local machines. We, we also use RDS for production uh, and staging, but our local development um, instances point to MySQL running in Docker. Same with Elasticsearch. So we, we, uh, we that's one of the things we dockerized really early because it is a little bit of a fiddly thing to build, um, right version of the JVM, right version of Elasticsearch, prep, prepping all the data and all that sort of stuff. So those sort of things are, are, are a natural fit, I think, for a lot of environments.
1: Yeah, I guess actually our Elasticsearch is dockerized as well. I hadn't really considered that in the scope of this question in terms of quote-unquote production just because it's not in our request path.
2: Yeah, and Redis as well, you know, all of that sort of stuff that, that anything that we sort of think about that could be easily self-contained. Um, and sometimes, you know, we're not necessarily, like in the case of dev environments, I, I don't have to worry about the continuity of the data all that much. Like if I lose the MySQL container with a replica, with my sanitized production replica in it, I'm like, eh, yeah. you know, I'll rebuild another one. Um, obviously, I, I don't necessarily sure I'd feel the same way in production. Um <laughs> But that's why we use RDS, so.
1: And something about about the data in dev that is actually kind of valuable for us is we actually, um, James alluded to talking about using Jenkins in conjunction with Docker and um, in his book. And like at Fever, one of the things we do is we actually build all of the images. We um, build all the images and push them to our private registry on Jenkins. So we build um, the MySQL container and load in all the fixtures that we want people to be able to use for their tests. Hmm. So they can pull down a container that actually literally has everything they need for the website to at least in kind of a limited fashion fashion work.
2: Uh, I think for continuous integration, um, I I cannot emphasize as much people should definitely look at Docker because you're dealing with execution environments that live for a very short period of time, usually while the tests are run, Often the tests are destructive, or they're, they're likely to leave the data in an in an unclean state, um, or a state where you you know you have to rebuild. I, I think Docker, just in terms of its startup speed and its build time, is a sensational combination for continuous integration. Absolutely sensational. You can we've seen people cut their build times in half.
1: Yeah, it's really the thing that takes the longest for us is running the tests, but getting the actual container doing everything we want it to do is
2: well that, that, way faster. that, 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 that that just did. I mean, let's say it takes you 30 minutes to run your tests and uh, 10 minutes of that or even five minutes of that is build and, and execution on a virtual machine. Taking it down to 25 minutes from 30 minutes over, and you know, if you're doing continuous deployment and you're trying to deploy more than multiple times a day, those five minutes add up pretty quickly.
1: When you're talking, and you said that you did go and travel a bunch, and I saw you at a few conferences last year talking about some of this stuff. It seems like recently on, you know, the internets or whatever, the, the discussions around Docker and, and its ecosystem and the environment around it have kind of heated up. Like, how do you find yourself reacting to some of the controversy? Ooh,
2: I guess it's, it's not such a, I mean, having lived with it for a long time, it's not such a shock to me. Um, like, there's always going to be people for whom hypey things are hypey. And I don't blame some people that, like, there, the, you know, there are certainly journalists out there who have simplified Docker to being like, this is a revolutionary technology um, that will ch- that will cure world hunger. Um, I'm fond of saying that 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 you know Docker is a a powerful tool to help you in your sort of um, in your development life cycle. If you want to get code off developers' laptops or out of repos into production as fast as possible, it's one of the best tools that's ever been developed for that. It's not a panacea though. It it won't. Um, not every workload in your data center is well-suited to Docker um, right now, certainly. Um, it certainly lends itself better to more immutable or, or to you know, high-performance computing or to things that are sort of uh, mini-node-like. If you've got Hadoop or you're doing sort of uh, data analysis or anything that involves jobs or anything like that, Docker, you know, it, it's like a natural fit. But you know, if you're running Oracle, um, you know, uh, as a back end for SAP, I- I'm not sure yet that Docker is your <laughs> ideal solution.
1: I would yeah. agree. I don't think Docker is for everything. Like we had um, right before I started at Drama Fever, we had a serious like let's Dockerize all the things project. And some mm-hmm. of the things that we Dockerized, like our Graphite server, I'm not convinced it's benefiting from being Dockerized. No, I've, I've uh, had
0: people who want to say, well, can I run Chef Server in a container? And I kind of say, I'm sure you could, but I don't understand why.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you so know? I, I look at Graphite as a really interesting example of this. So like, I would probably run Carbon Relay and Carbon Cache inside Docker containers, but I'd probably point them at a physical machine with SSD disk in it to do actually burn the Whisper. Um, or burn, burn the metrics down to uh, you know but I can easily do things like I want to add a, a 10 new carbon relays I can do that really quickly with Docker and very simply like that that makes that sort of scalable ease of use stuff really simple but it takes consideration of the fact that okay maybe I maybe Docker isn't the best way to write out um, you know transactional real-time metrics um, to a file system I don't know I've never performance tested it but I would suggest that, that, that you need to look at each implementation and say, where does Docker fit here? Are we actually gaining stuff? Are we gaining stuff? Okay, we are. We should Dockerize that and we should leave the bits that don't need to be Dockerized either until Docker has improved its capabilities in that area or not at all. Um, it's the same, it's like you use the tool, the, the tool that's best for the job um, rather than sort of go, you know uh, all of the tools need to look the same.
1: Right. Yeah, I think that that's exactly what we're now to a point with our Docker use that we are re-examining it and figuring out where we can make improvements, like much smaller images, say for the, the Go yeah. applications that we're shipping that have very few dependencies. You know, hey, we got it down to like a 10 meg container or, or rather a 10 meg container image. Excellent. Yeah. It makes for pulling the image and, you know, when stuff auto scales a lot faster. Um, so there's places like that where we're kind of iterating towards improvements, but then there's also places where we're kind of looking and going, do we really, as we you know, refactor this, that, or the other, maybe Docker isn't the right solution for absolutely everything, and that's okay. Yeah.
2: So I think a lot of people respond to stuff like that, and they go, I don't like that because someone has made a sweeping generalization. Personally, I don't base my technical architecture and my product decisions based on what tech journalists write or even what excitable people write in in a two paragraph blog post about you know docker Wookie or world hunger I, I make them based on you know I try a bunch of products out I, I look at a bunch of architectures I do some testing I collect some data and then I make a decision you know if you're if your immediate response to something is I haters I'm sort of like I'm sort of skeptical about those sort of responses it means someone basically hasn't put a lot of thought into into whether docker is a fit or not and, and what docker's strengths and weaknesses are and also people don't like popular things I think there's a there is there is a certain backlash against things that are in Australia we call it the tall poppy syndrome you know like the, the, uh, you know the the, the flower that, that that climbs above the rest of the other flowers first one that gets chopped down I think there's probably an American equivalent of that phrase
0: um, Yeah, so we, we, would, we would say it's it's being a hipster right you know it's like oh man I used Docker before it was cool. So screw that. Hey, I was in the Yeah, exactly. Right? You know, so
1: Does it count yeah. as a hipster if one of the reasons you decide to work at a place is because they're using Docker in production and it's mid-2014 and you're like, this is a kind of fun, cool idea.
0: I I, I actually think that's I mean, if we, we kinda of think about it, we'll probably talk about this in our next episode, which is gonna be about starting a new DevOps job, about why you decide to work where you do and and i think that things like that could totally be really legit reasons um in moderation
1: what it really says to me is that they're not afraid to try things
0: right i'm saying it's the level of the of the cut of the of the risk yeah, if it was something – I was trying to think of something clever, and it didn't happen. And being funny is the only thing I'm able to possibly contribute to this episode. So
1: Actually, no, that's not true because <laughs> you read the thing on Reddit that I didn't want to read because yeah. I thought I was going to do that <laughs> thanks to my blood pressure. Reddit. Also be
2: oh, suited. that blog post. Okay. Um, well, Matt, it's not even Matt, so much Matt the blog post, but. Matt
1: read uh, it. He read it. Uh, Matt found some information in there that he did want to talk about. So, Matt. Yeah, so
0: to give a little bit of background, and I'll put the links to this in the show notes to, to take a look at it. So, there was a, a post that was linked to in the uh, R sysadmin subreddit, and the post is called Docker is fundamentally flawed. Useless hype. Or actually, I think the post is actually called Revisiting Docker Again. And
2: Yeah, uh, I think the author comment. made a, an original blog post uh, some months beforehand where he looked at maybe Docker 1.0 yeah. or something like that, and he was now looking at it again.
0: This was his revisiting, which, I mean, and, and the thing was, I will say this, that kind of looking at the, the, at, at the writer, the author's comments much later in the thread, it was still very contentious, but you know, kind of was doing a little backpedaling about the, hey, I'm not a journalist, I'm not a tech expert, I'm just saying my thing. But it was it was fairly inflammatory. But that being said, what I was more interested in, because I don't have the, the, the chops to, like, even really comprehend whether or not it was valid or not, was there's this long flame war thread where people get all angry and you know and I but I kind of was picking through it and saying well when I take away some of the like flaminess and fud and all this stuff that is so popular in that subreddit there were two things that I said hey as someone who doesn't really know this these these sound like legitimate questions in terms of I'm actually curious so I would like to pose them and and get your thoughts and so this first one and I'm going to quote directly from the the user, and it says user is a A-K-O. Uh, it says that, and so this person's opinion, says Docker is a DevOps solution to an operational systems problem. It's a solution to a problem from a developer's point of view and someone that has little to no experience with the OS platforms they're running on. Docker provides no security benefits at all. What it provides is an operational and developer benefit, but it makes security a hundred times worse. Okay. Big thing. I, uh, the thing about that, like to unpack it, the two pieces, one is there's this belief, and again, it's the, the sysadmin subreddit, so of course they hate all developers, yep. right? So Docker is a dev tool, like, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So I'd like your thoughts on that, and then also this security <laughs> sure. Yeah.
2: So this is one of the things that, um, when I looked at that blog post, the, the thing that struck me most about it was that it was a very, it, it lacked a lot of empathy for those people that actually have to use technology. And this is something I get very strident about, uh, I've been on both sides of the fence, and, and I'm a notoriously terrible developer, but you know, I have, have worn that hat. Um, I've been a sysadmin. I've been a security person. Um, I've, I've been a CTO and a, a VP of engineering and an ops manager and a bunch of other things. So you know, I consider myself somewhat of a jack of all trades. And I think one of the reasons, um, if I can be a little bit, um, one of the reasons I think I've been reasonably successful at what I do um, is that I have empathy for other people's problems, and a lot of sysadmins, you pointed it out, you actually sort of hit the nail on the head, there's a lot of sysadmins in, in, uh, in our, our sysadmin that hate developers. And I think that's true of, of a certain subset of, of the operations and sysadmin community. Um, their basic developers are really annoying, they, they, they want things, they want test environments, uh, they ship you code that doesn't work, um, you know, that they, when something breaks, they, they you know, they they're not the ones that get woken up at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, They're cowboys. They're always cutting, writing new things with no conception of how production works, all that sort of thing. Um, And uh, I look at that and, um, and the first thing that strikes me about that is a, um, have you thought about, you know, what's going on in their world and why they're doing that. And the second thing is that you do realize that your job doesn't exist without them. And for a lot of sysadmins, you know, you, you don't manage infrastructure that sits there and and, and is infrastructure for infrastructure's sake. Um, you have uh, two customers. One is the business and, by extension, their customers, and the other is the people internal to the company that rely on the infrastructure, who are people like DBAs and developers, um, business analysts, all of those people. Those people pay your salaries. And I find it galling, if not outright sort of, makes me makes me very, very angry, let's put it that way, when I, I hear sysadmins um, basically lack that empathy entirely for the people that they effectively their customers. They don't ask themselves, you know, why do developers end up shipping me this code that looks that that doesn't work in production? Or why do they build these things that don't fit our security model or can't be backed up or don't fit into our logging environment? And hence we are on a DevOps blog post. The most logical reason for that is they have no fucking idea what, what production looks like. And why don't they have any idea? Because there's this grumpy asshole who manages production and they're terrified to go and ask them a question. <laughs>
1: yeah, I used yeah. to be that grumpy asshole.
2: Yeah. And yeah,
1: and, it's, it's so much better when the devs are not afraid to talk to you. Correct. It makes um, me much happier. As the former grumpy asshole, it makes me much happier when the devs are willing to talk to me.
2: And it makes the whole environment more productive because they stop doing things like shipping things that don't match the production architecture and that don't, you know, make assumptions about libraries and versions and operating systems and connectivity and security and all that sort of stuff. You know, I guess I look at this in response to go, well, this is a developer solution to an operational problem. And I go, so you're complaining because the people that you have tortured and or ignored um, who actually provide the code that runs on your infrastructure and makes your company money have decided to solve this particular problem with or without you, surely you want to get on this bandwagon before someone pushes you off the (laughs) the, the building or out of the building and replaces you. Um, And the other irony I find particularly amusing is that Solomon Hikes, who was the original architect of Docker, um comes from such a strong operational background. He's a developer for sure, yeah. but he actually ran a PaaS. He was he was the CTO of uh, uh, the the ultimate in infrastructure companies.
0: Without getting like into whatever thing, but you know we we're I think we're fairly aware that there's this perception as well that Chef is for devs, and that makes me laugh all the time for anybody who knows Adam Jacob or knows yeah. probably 90% of the people that work at Chef. Uh, yeah, so um, many of these things are, like you said, they're built by sysadmins and who get it right, and it's that just gets missed. We ran into this with our episode we did with Jeffrey Snover, the guy who created PowerShell. And I'm seeing people being like, "Oh, here's some marketing guy," and blah blah blah. And I'm like, "Do you guys not understand that, like, this thing you do that you love, like, this guy created it, and because he's done your your job?" So, yeah. Anyway,
1: and also on that security aspect, like we don't worry about you know containing things inside the container for security's sake because at least in our implementation of docker and production in our request path on our production servers we are securing the actual host instance that the you know containers are running on and we're not trying to protect the containers from each other like i don't know that i would use were i running something like DigitalOcean, i don't know that i would use docker to separate customers from each other but that's not the use case that at least we have. Well, and, and it's and, not
2: something Docker has ever claimed. So, so I didn't answer this. I got a bit ranty, and I apologize. Um, but th- that security question is really interesting. So if you look at the Docker recommendations for this, um, we basically say you should run applications of like security risk together on Docker containers. You shouldn't use Docker containers as security containers. Mm-hmm. Um, that They are not virtual machines. But and, and again, for that matter, virtual machines in a lot of cases If you run PCI DSS, you shouldn't share PCI DSS applications on the same virtual machine cluster, despite them being far more uh, hard edges than, than, say, a Docker container is. Um, So we make a series of recommendations about like risk profile applications or like security-zoned applications being run together. Um, We strongly recommend you use things like SE Linux and AppArmor, and as uh, Bridget highlighted, we strongly recommend you secure the host that it's running on, and that's the level of protection you look at.
0: Yeah, okay, awesome. I think that actually pretty much answers the second point, which was to say, you know, a uh, user named StrangeWill said, I wonder how various compliance regulations view this idea of run one role per server with containers, with elevation exploits, so that I could see them arguing the separation between containers isn't as clear-cut as between VMs and a Type 1 hypervisor, and that's exactly what you just said. Yep. It's not, so don't treat it like that. <laughs> so yeah. that kind of addresses that right which is don't it's not a hypervisor it's uh, like yeah so I think that's probably just a quite like I said some of these were the things that made sense to me I'm like oh that's a good question yeah to then be told rightly so well but no that's that's not what you should do I'm like oh okay
1: but it's good that you brought those up because I think those are some of the things people get concerned about oh
0: yeah that's what I'm saying I was, okay. I, was, I, was I was I'm not necessarily expecting that that these are like this is why docker bad but it's it's helping to educate, you know. Um no, race conditions, sense.
1: race conditions with device mappers why Docker bad. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, but the really interesting thing about security and compliance is that you ask a half a dozen of these people who have an opinion about security and compliance, how many of them actually read any security guidelines or any of the uh-huh. things? I challenge actually I will challenge anyone in that thread to actually tell me if they've read the PCI DSS standards. Now I have repeatedly because I was a security guy in a bank. Um, I guarantee you 90% of the people I talk to who say PCI DSS needs to do X have never actually implemented PCI DSS and have no idea that X is actually a very low bar. And if you followed simply the regulations, the compliance stuff that that related to things like PCI DSS, you would be running a massively insecure system.
0: And, And likewise, I think what we run into is this understanding of the what I need to do for compliance is what I've been told to do. Correct. Yeah. On outcomes, this happened. We did a in one of our older episodes. So, uh, restdevops.com/six. Our MythBusters episode. You can hear Sasha Bates like go all crazy about it. I uh, um, can't do DevOps. I must watch that. that it's like, oh, can I answer this one? <laughs> and it's totally true. So.
1: Now that we've we've asked you about some of the fear, uncertainty, and doubt out there, uh, talk to us about. Mm, open containers, spec stuff, Rocket, like anything oh. else in the ecosystem, is any of that, like, does any of that mean that the sky is falling or has already fallen? Or maybe people should be paralyzed by indecision now because nobody has any idea what's going on at this point? Like, what um, kind of recommendations would you make around that?
2: So I'm going to probably say a few reasonably controversial things. Um, <laughs> advance to, uh, to the okay, team. My view of Rocket is that CoreOS need to create a market and ecosystem, uh, and the way to do that is to own the standard. Obviously, uh, you know they identified very quickly that if Docker owned the standard, then Docker would own the ecosystem around the standard. And they might not necessarily build all the tools, but they would hold that. The, you know, even with the very loose governance model that Docker has, you know, they would at least be somewhat of a gatekeeper around that ecosystem, and they'd certainly gain all the buzz in the marketing as they have around that ecosystem. Uh, so what's the way to try and uh, build your own buzz and your own sort of ecosystem around that is was well, you release a bunch of standards um, or you publish an alternative standard I personally think the CoreOS guys left it a little bit too late I think that, that the run that docker got before that um, you know even though there were some you know there's some issues around uh, how transparent some of the early development around standards was um, but broadly speaking um, I think they left the run too late I would be very surprised if they get a lot of traction around rocket. Um, just because momentum, um, even if it's a better technical solution, I, I, I see if, and I'm definitely gonna be showing my age here, uh, Betamax versus VHS, um, Betamax (laughs) far more elegant technical solution. Did it win? No. So uh, I'm not sure if there's a, if there's a, I'm not sure if there's a millennial equivalent, maybe Blu-ray and DVD or something. I don't know. Um, but uh, disc, I don't know, maybe there, even there,
0: a lot. there has to be a lot because that comparison gets made all the time. Yeah. So there must be other things. I feel like we always do this. We say it a lot. We're always com- saying it's like Betamax and VHS, but I don't remember <laughs> what any of those things are. that <laughs> we're comparing it to. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
2: So I, I think I'm not particularly – if I was the Docker team, I wouldn't be particularly worried. Um, I think Solomon's kind of – and, you know, in, in his defense um, – you know, he's very passionate about this space, so he does get a little bit worked up on occasion. Um, but rightfully so, he built effectively built this whole this whole you hype or not. He built this whole thing. Um, uh, you know, you can say he's yes, he's standing on the shoulders of some giants, but he did actually push all this stuff out. And I think he's rightfully hurt that people are not sort of you know um, collaborating on something. And it's not even the business stuff to him, which. You know Solomon's a pretty smart guy, but at his heart is is an open source sort of guy, and um, I think he's kind of hurt that that people didn't want to collaborate on stuff and they wanted to build an alternative. He's also really open to taking criticism about Docker. Um, he just hates criticism that comes in the form of nobody providing solutions or answers or or coming up with alternatives um, or coming up with alternatives that don't involve sort of collaboration.
1: All right. So when I feel ranty about Device Mapper. Or- in race conditions, I should submit some pull requests.
2: You should talk to Michael Crosby. <laughs> I mean, I Michael Crosby is currently somewhere in San
0: Francisco going, that motherfucker. <laughs> Bridget, I think you need to change your Twitter handle to device mapper in race conditions. Yeah.
1: Unlike some of us in this little hangout, I don't change my like name on Twitter every week. That's what. I didn't even fun. know you
2: could
0: do that until recently, so that's how yeah.
1: It's really aggravating. Please don't.
0: Yeah the here's something that that's interesting to me and I, and James I don't know what you know we can kind of think about this philosophically or technically but looking at how people like Amazon and Microsoft the way that they're embracing docker and providing it from a, a service perspective and in in both kind of those are I think two different kinds of questions i think there's one big question which is the hey amazon azure saying docker's a thing we want you to be able to Dockerized natively, but then also thinking about Microsoft's embracement of Docker in the first place and kind of your thoughts and, and feels around these things.
2: Sure. Um, I, I hearkened earlier to the sort of concept of getting code off laptops and out of repos and onto production infrastructure. If you're Amazon and Microsoft, but certainly in the AWS and the Azure space, every one of those pushes is more money, right? So every, more, every time you get more of that code... Um and faster onto more machines um, is revenue. Um, so Docker, if it facilitates that, um, you know, both in the case of Amazon and Microsoft is like uh, certainly the cloud services side of Microsoft anyway, they look at that as really attractive. And if you look at some of Azure's considerable success in the Microsoft, more traditional Microsoft space, it's their integration with things like developer tools that have actually allowed them to become become so embedded in the Microsoft landscape. It's so like if you're in, you know, um, if you're not up with the bloody thing is called Virtual source, source Safe or whatever the the, the developer, um, uh, I can't remember what it's called now, the developer front end for Microsoft is called. Visual but Studio. Visual Studio. That's it. I keep thinking VS. And it was VS something. Um, Visual Studio, um, one of the things about that is you can collect, click a dropdown, add your Azure credentials and deploy your application from the Visual Studio that's got to be driving revenue towards Azure because that's incredibly easy, right? And if you're a developer with no infrastructure skills whatsoever and you can just go click button, launch application in cloud, make available to customers, that's really attractive. So if you can do the same thing with Linux-based tools um, and and to expand some of that market out as well, um, the Azure guys have got to be thinking, well, that's a good idea. AWS feels the same way. It's a very AWS's initial customers. We're heavily developer-oriented. Like if you did not have operational people, um, you know, Amazon was a very attractive offering because it sort of removed some of that someone else manages up to the data center layer and sometimes even a bit forward with the AMI manages a lot of the operating system level stuff. So Docker enables those people to get more workloads um, faster. It's pretty attractive.
1: Oh, that makes a lot of sense.
2: Uh, You know, these these guys are smart business people, right? Um, They're not going to ignore an opportunity like that. And a lot of people have said, oh, you know, they're just, because it's just market hype, they want to integrate. And I'm like, no, they've actually got genuine business reasons for doing this. And you need to think very carefully through their business models to understand what those reasons are. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's, it's pretty transparent. Um, Verno, most of uh, the sort of fairly recently has sort of said this, um, listen to people like Adrian Cockcroft and people like that, you, you'll get some insight into exactly why the public cloud players think Docker is extremely attractive. And Microsoft it's, more broadly sees the same thing at the desktop level. Um, they're trying to create enhance that market share.
0: That was this came up, you know, that was uh, one of the things that Jeffrey Snover said on our, our last episode with the whole, you know, Microsoft loves Linux and people like, Oh, is it real? And he said, in the context of Azure, he says, We make more money if you run ten instances of Linux on Azure than if you run four instances of Windows. Yep. So it's they don't they're like, We'll meet you where you are, you know. And and then I guess to me thinking about pri- like from a pricing perspective, I guess this is kind of the thing too is, you know, does this help not not keep people from taking advantage of, but if you're like, oh, if I, I guess it's sort of like what's the model. And I guess the model is, again, at the end of the day, you're selling compute. You don't really care how it's sliced and diced if you're Amazon sure. or whomever. So you're like, hey, you want to have a whole bunch of containers. You want to have a host. You want to have a whatever. It doesn't care. It's a certain amount of compute time. A certain amount of CPU, a certain amount of RAM, a certain yep. amount of whatever, but it's all here. And, and every tool that
2: drives time. you into the ecosystem, like Amazon is really good. I, I describe Amazon as a walled garden. Yeah. You, the, there are some pretty flowers inside the walled garden. You wander into the, the walled garden. The door closes behind you and you go, I can smell the pretty flowers. And a bit later on you go, this is, some of these flowers are pretty pricey. And you realize you can't find the door. And, and when you do, it's locked. This is a this is a, it's an awesome business model. So anything that drives developers towards that world garden, and then keeps them there, product. If you're an Amazon product manager, so yeah. sell
1: that offering. <laughs> nice. Last question for you, James. Before we move into talking about you know community stuff and um, and some of our checkouts and whatnot, is it seems like you've done a lot of thinking in this space, unsurprisingly, and. I, it makes me think of, like, that whole Wayne Gretzky thing, like, skate, skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it's been. Like, if you were giving people advice, possibly people who are listening to this podcast, if you're giving advice right now as to what people should be paying attention to, what people should be using or doing or giving a shit about in this container space, like, right now, where is the puck going to be?
2: Sure. So I think you can ignore all infrastructure stuff. Um, it's kind of boring anyway, um, and, and it's 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 only been a bit, you know, there's been a bit of, you know, how it talks to system D and device mapper and AUFS and all that sort of stuff. It's kind of meaningless. Um, what I would be looking at is the orchestration and application management capabilities. Um, I'd be looking at the people who are building integrated SDN solutions, um, uh, software-defined networking, that is, and, and also software-defined data centers. Um, all of those people who are building that sort of stuff out of Docker components. Um, I'm not particular. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not hugely positive on things like PaaS and, and OpenStack and Cloud Foundry and stuff like that. I I, I'm never, I I think all of those things are kind of failed. Um, well, I wouldn't say failed. They're, they're not particularly interesting to me um, as a technology, um, but I look at things like uh, Docker Compose, which is the, re- the renamed fig, um, the stuff that's going to come out, there's told Docker Swarm, which is all of the sort of clustering technology, Um, people who are building networking things and routers and switches and software-defined things with Docker, um, and people who are moving up the stack to manage whole, you know, manage different levels of abstraction. That's where things start to get really interesting because that's one of the areas where configuration management is also heading. Like, if you're a chef or a puppet, then you're clearly looking at managing up the stack towards applications. Mm Docker is clearly doing the same thing. If you're a developer and you can now, instead of having to run that PaaS or that open stack, you can take like, you know, fig version three or fig version four that just automatically runs you a complex stack both locally in development and then the same complex stack in production. Um, that's a really attractive offering. Like that's a really interesting sort of part. Like I have to, I can stop worrying about this clustering stuff or I don't have to pay as much attention to it as I did in the past or I don't have to rely on hugely brilliant engineers to build me this thing, uh, it now becomes a black box commodity service for me. Um, And that's interesting.
1: You make a really good point too, which is that it's not like anyone has, you know, their data center with Docker and only Docker. And that's the only thing that they use and that solves all of their problems because that would be probably sort of ludicrous. And like when I think of things that we've actually recently introduced to an ecosystem that already had Docker, we've started using Chef, we've started using Packer. Like, we have specific use cases that those things are incredibly helpful to us for. So it's, it's kind of, like, it's important to remember just what you said. It's like, there's not one answer that solves all your problems, but this is a direction that is super useful.
2: And the other interesting aspect there is that, that people forget that there's no secret sauce in this stuff, right? Everyone running Nginx and Apache and MySQL is probably running it 80% of the same way as everyone else. I challenge you to find a MySQL, a Lamp Stack site where eighty-five percent, ninety percent of the configuration files are absolutely identical. Um, so we have to remember that that as sysadmins and operations people, um, you know, we need to be sort of uh, looking to move up the stack ourselves to manage applications better, because our secret knowledge of like which thing to tweak um, is not as valuable as we think it is. Um, and uh, we need to actually understand what is valuable which is making applications faster, making them uh, deliver deliver them more quickly offer a better level of service um, you know offer th- business and customers things that will actually make them uh, look at us and go wow these guys are really helping us you know sell widgets or provide services or
1: whatever it is that and if you, rely on secret knowledge to uh, make your life happy. That life will involve never going on vacation to the boundary waters and canoeing without a cell phone. And that life will also involve a lot of waking up at four in the morning. I so recommend I, you know I, not going with that.
2: I would substitute um, sitting by the pool in Costa Rica, but, but okay, you, you can go with the outdoors.
1: <laughs> the pool is probably outdoors if it's in Costa Rica. I don't think it's they need to have, have an indoor bring
2: pool. Cocktails with umbrellas in them. i pretty sure they <laughs>
0: don't.
1: <laughs> Love it. Okay, so let's let's move into talking about some upcoming community and event stuff. Yeah. Um, Angie from Container Camp uh, tweeted earlier, actually, that I'm going to I'm gonna be out in San Francisco on April 17th speaking at Container Camp, and I'll have a discount code, BK15, for a 20% discount. That gave us some fits of confusion until we realized it's 2015. I, I don't know when Thank that you. happened. Um, but uh, we also are going to have a couple of free tickets to give away, so anyone who um let's see we'll pick a winner for today out of everyone who tweets i love at arrested devops and at container camp uh within two days of the live broadcast and then again we'll pick a second one within two days when the episode goes live on itunes so there's That'll that awesome. and also then at, you've got one as well
0: oh right so yeah so just uh remember chef Conf, uh will be march 31st through april 2nd in santa clara Uh, If you go to chef.o slash chefconf, the code ADO will get you a 10% discount. Bridget's speaking. I'm speaking. Trevor's speaking. Other people are speaking but that aren't on the show. But, yeah, so come. It'll be awesome and fun. So, James, what cool things are you going to do? Oh, yeah,
1: James, because I know that you like other things besides Docker, and we didn't even get a chance (laughs) to talk about any of them. But, like, you did an awesome monitoring survey in the last year, so I know you're into monitoring, and – it may, I Just give us one spoiler. Tell us about something exciting that you learned from your monitoring survey or something that surprised you about it.
2: Um, I think more that um, – so, so there was, I, I was both disappointed and happy with the outcome. <laughs> I was disappointed that, that so few developers do monitoring. Um, oh. That made me very sad um, and something I'm going to try and work on over the next 12 months and trying to evangelize it to developers about how they can get involved with monitoring. It's not sort of a sysadmin-centric thing. The thing that did make me pleased was that there were quite a large number of people that were actually heading towards sort of monitoring business logic instead of just like CPU and memory disk, which is kind of, you know, it's useful, but it's in the context of the business, it's kind of worthless. Um, so the fact that more and more people were looking at applications and, and the business as things they should measure um, was very heartening.
1: Awesome. So if people want to talk to you about that kind of stuff or about Docker, like where can they find you in the coming months?
2: Uh, in April, I'll be at FluentConf, um, talking about um, uh, Docker for developers. Um, and in June, I will be at Monitorama in Portland, where I'll be launching the 2015 version of the monitoring survey. Uh, bigger, better, stronger. Um, hopefully, not uh, more complicated, because it'll be a while to relearn how to use R and maths um, to process it all. But um, yeah, so I'll be uh, I'll be talking about. Um, Monitoring as a service and how to build a monitoring environment that sort of services your customers, and I'll also be talking uh, about the new monitoring survey and the results of the previous year's monitoring survey.
1: Awesome, great, thank you. So, so let's go into our checkouts, James. What do you, what do you got for us? You got something cool to check out?
2: Yeah. Um, so. Uh, one of the things that I've been, re- I've been reading um, fairly eagerly at the moment is that um, early access version of Jason Dixon's monitoring with Graphite book uh, is, uh, I think he's about four chapters in. Um, and uh, those of you who are familiar with Graphite, it's an amazing graphing tool, um, both in terms of collecting metrics and, and the dashboard that displays them. And it integrates with a lot of other tools, Collectd, Grafana, Influx, uh, DB, all that sort of stuff, really cool. Um, and if you're thinking about looking at monitoring, um, and looking at a more metric centric monitoring environment, then Jason's book is absolutely awesome. Um, it's available through O'Reilly on early release. if you go to the O'Reilly website and look for graph search for graphite or Jason Dixon, you'll find it. Um,
1: yeah, uh, I've, I've read the first three chapters of it. I owe him comments on the first three chapters of it, but it's really quite good.
2: Yeah, it is. It's very impressive. Um, it's a huge product and, uh, the topic of graphs and metrics is like non-trivial to cover, so I've been pretty impressed by how elegantly he's done it so far. Um, and I'll put a pitch in as well, I'm also writing a book about monitoring, it's going to be called Very Arrogantly, The Art of Monitoring. Um, <laughs> the website is uh, artofmonitoring.com um, and uh, at the moment you can just sign up for the mailing list and get updates when they get released, but um, I'm going to be building a, helping people build a new monitoring architecture, so essentially something that that isn't... Um, that's in a traditional Nagios pull-centric model, but more of a application-centric, business-centric push model, which is sort of focused really on metrics, uh, on events, um, rather than um, on checks
1: and uh, hosts. Awesome. That's that's super sweet. Okay, so uh, let's see, since it's checkout slash retro, um, since last time we podcasted, one of the reasons that I wasn't on, a recent one, was being out of town. I actually spent a week out with my Philly and New York-based Drama Fever co-workers, which was super fun. And I got to go to our third annual Drama Fever award show. Um, I mostly thought I was just attending for the after party with you know, off-key karaoke singing with co-workers, which was super fun. But the actual award show was really neat, too, because there were you know, K-drama stars who came over to the U.S. and were completely jet-lagged and like presenting awards to one another. And there was a K-pop band called Surprise, spelled with a five, all very confusing. <laughs> and I was telling a friend of mine here in Minneapolis about this, and he said, oh, Surprise, the, the K-pop band, yes, my 13-year-old, 14-year-old daughter loves them. And I was like, ah, this is something I don't know anything about because I'm old. Excellent. But I got to see them, so I took some video of them. Give it to him for his daughter. Give it to Paul when I see him next. <laughs> um, well, that was kind of fun. But then um, also the uh, the other thing I have Docker-related for people to check out is the Docker to Doocy Chrome plugin. So some of you may have seen this. Uh, Matt did tweet about it before. Um, but it's very much along the same lines as Cloud to Butt. But if you would like to... Um, See Michael Ducey all over your uh, Docker pages instead of just the word Docker everywhere. It's very, very funny.
0: That uh, that 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 very that inflammatory Docker post is hilarious when you have the Docker to Juicy Deucey plugin. in. <laughs> like this dude is got problems with me. I don't know what I ever did to him.
2: <laughs> like, I'm
0: congratulations not so on one though. Uh,
2: Docker Docker hype or, or juicy hype. I mean, <laughs> the one that makes me feel a little bit nauseous.
0: <laughs> to, to, tomato tomato, right? You know so. Oh, he's going to punch me. (laughs) Uh, So retro. So last week I was in Portland for the very first time ever, which is crazy because I have family out there. So I was super excited to visit my family. But I was there for Agile Open Northwest, which is an all open spaces Agile conference. Um, That was a lot of fun. I led an open space about improv. I uh, got a tattoo. I met the founder of Voodoo Donuts while winding a clock at OMSI. You know, such hipster. Very, very Portland. Uh, and then the <laughs> other checkouts I have is today I learned about a gem called Kitty, like Kitty Cat. So if you just type in gem install Kitty, every time you type in Kitty at your prompt, you'll get a little ASCII drawing of a cat to cheer you up. So there's that.
1: So this would help Catherine if she's saying rubby, 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 rubby.
0: It would. It would. Uh, and then you can also export uh, alias Kite to Kitty if you really want to be cool. Uh, I also have finally, even though it's been on for like two weeks, but I've finally been home to watch stuff on my DVR, so I'm getting caught up on watching Better Call Saul, which is a spinoff from Breaking Bad. It's like the prequel to Breaking Bad. It's awesome if you... Actually, I think it would be awesome even if you didn't watch Breaking Bad, but I, it, I had high expectations, and they have been met so far. So... Huzzah! We have a newsletter. It's a, you can sign up for it at arresteddevops.com/banana stand. It's the best way to know about our upcoming podcast episodes and cool news with DevOps. We've been sending it out regularly, twice a month, like for reals now. <laughs>
1: Ever Uh, since I gave you shit about it and asked if we should remove that we have a newsletter because I didn't think we actually did.
0: That's right. We totally do. And it's awesome. I'm so excited. So I want to give big thanks to Mandy Moore. Uh, You can find her on Twitter at The Ruby Rep or at devreps.com. She helps us out with all of our post-production of um, the show. She's the best in the business for helping out software professionals from anything to administration, to research, to event organization, to podcast production. Check her out and, and the rest of her company services at devreps.com.
1: Thanks to our sponsor. Please be sure to visit them at arresteddevops.com slash victorops and arresteddevops.com slash datadog thirty-one. Thanks you thank you so much, James, for joining us today. This is super fun having you.
2: No, it was awesome to be here. I apologize if I got too ranty in parts. Um, no, if anything, not ranty <laughs> enough.
1: <laughs> exactly the right amount of Australian ranty. Exactly.
2: I think I, I, it was only five or six expletives, so it was a quiet <laughs> night.
1: <laughs> I think I probably swore just about as much as you did. Um, and uh, to our loyal listeners, if you enjoy Arrested DevOps, we'd appreciate it if you'd visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes and leave us a review in the iTunes store. No matter what you have to say, we'd love to get your feedback.
0: You can check us out at ArrestedDevOps.com on the interwebs, uh, at ArrestedDevOps on Twitter, we're on the Facebooks, and we're always happy to get your input ideas or feedback at shows at ArrestedDevOps.com. Please let us know any ideas you have for future episodes. I'm Matt, at Matt Stratton.
1: And I'm Bridget, at Bridget Kremhout. We're ArrestedDevOps, and remember...
0: There's always DevOps in the banana stand.